We're going to get into the word. Just let me know when you're ready. All right. So, Lord, as we pray tonight, I thank you for your presence here tonight. What an, what an anointing here. What a glory here. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the awesome presence of the Lord. I thank you for your Holy Spirit just moving upon every one of us that are going to be listening to this tonight. And help us by the Holy Spirit to get tuned in to you, locked in good soil of hearts and minds and lives as the Holy Spirit moves upon us. I thank you, Lord, for helping us have that good soil that you speak. I thank you for speaking through me. Your living seeds of truth that's sown into that good soil and watered by the Holy Spirit. Take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes, or fruit that remains. I thank you for the winds of your Holy Spirit carrying this out among the nations. It's going to get where it's supposed to, accomplish what it's supposed to. I thank you for it, and we submit this unto you. And the Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the seed, so we're going to agree together. Anything of the enemy, they would try to hinder this in any way. We command it in Jesus' name to be bound right now, and you will back off from the word of the Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for your angels just clearing away any resistance and that this will go forth, and we stand on the promise the word of God will not return void. But it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We thank you for it now. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so we're looking at a very um, interesting series that we're doing, The Rise of Satanism in America. And I'm on part three. If you're catching this last part, please make sure and go back and listen to the first two if you can. Because I, I think it would be uh, very advantageous. But tonight, we're looking at it from kind of a little bit different angle. Um, because I'm talking about the story of Esther, and I'm tying that in. So here we are at Purim. And so I want to bring all this together. This is going to be a very different and interesting sermon in many ways. Probably there's some things that you've never heard before. So give me your best ear tonight. This might be one of those to take a few notes as well. But just getting started tonight, I want to bring out this. We're looking at part three, an ancient hatred, okay? There is a word or a phrase in Hebrew, olam eba, which means the ancient hatred. And it goes back to those that have been great enemies to the nation of Israel down through the ages, olam eba, okay? So when we look at this, the first thing I want to point out there is a Jewish midrash that states that when Esau was getting old, he called in his grandson Amalek and said to him, I tried to kill Jacob, but was unable to. Now I am entrusting you and your descendants with the important mission of annihilating Jacob's descendants, the Jewish people. Carry out this deed for me, be relentless, and do not show mercy. So Esau is a picture in type of the Olam Eba, the ancient hatred that even goes back to the womb of Rebekah that has followed Israel down through the ages. And those of us, collectively, they're the seed of Abraham, 
there has been this ancient hatred. And so I want you to see one of the places that this manifested here is in the story of Esther. As many of you already know, Esther, her real name is Hadassah, but she was a direct descendant of King Saul. It says in Esther 2.5, she was a, a descendant of Kish, who was the father of Saul. And also, she was, uh, Haman was a direct descendant of Agag, who was the Amalekite. Because you remember the story, God told King Saul, I want you to go annihilate Amalek completely, leave no animals, nothing. And what did Saul do? He saved the best animals. He left the king alive. The king was Agag. So I'm sure that somehow, anyway, there's a direct descendant of Agag in Esther 3.1 named Haman. So this is, an, this is something that Saul should have dealt with. How many knows as parents or grandparents, if you don't deal with stuff in your generation like you should, you're leaving it for your kids to have to face it. And that's what we're dealing with right here. Esther's having to deal with something that Saul did not deal with in his generation like he should have. He was rebellious. God told him, don't leave any of them alive at all. And he left some of them alive, obviously. All right, so it appears also in the story of Esther that Mordecai exposed a plot of assassination against the king, but Haman took credit for it, which is interesting. Haman hated Mordecai because he would, he would not compromise his godly convictions and bow down to him, okay? So... Mordecai was used of a Lord, so to speak, here to expose this plot of assassination. But how many of you guys have ever done something and then somebody else took credit for it? That's what I believe happened. So Haman took credit for it and he was exalted. And then whenever Haman went around in all of his pride, Mordecai was the only guy that wouldn't bow down to him. So Haman hated him for that. But he, Mordecai couldn't do it because he's not supposed to bow down to anybody but the Lord, you see. All right, so in the month of Nisan, Haman was plotting the destruction of the entire Jewish race. He didn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wanted to annihilate all the Jews. And this probably goes back to the fact of Amalek, that he was basically an Amalekite. And he had been entrusted by his ancient ancestor Esau to annihilate the Jewish people. And you see that come back up here that, that he's this ancient hatred, this Olam Eba, he despised him and he wanted to wipe out all the Jews, so he cast lots to determine the time. Now, in the Bible, how many have read that phrase, casting lots? It seemed like that God honored it among the priesthood and others like that, the early church, the apostles, that they would pray and they would cast lots, and it was like kind of like throwing dice or something, and how it landed, decisions would be made. But when the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts, they quit depending on the lots and they started depending on the relationship with the Holy Spirit, which is how it should be. But in this case, we're not dealing with God being in this. This was something that would have been a, what we would call divination. He was seeking uh, supernatural advice from a source that was not God. And so basically, this would have been an occult practice for him. But he was casting lots, and the lots fell on Nisan 14, or I'm sorry, the 14th of Adar. And so he determined that that was going to be the annihilation of the Jews. So this information came to Mordecai, who began to relay it to Esther. And we know the story. You should go back and reread it. And Esther declared a fast for three days. All of Israel fasted and prayed, no water, no food. She went before the king. The entire thing turned around. But let me point out a few other things. The attack came through government. Have you ever thought about that? It came through Haman was somebody that was a government employee, and he manipulated the king to pass legislation. And it was going to exterminate God's people. So see, Satan is a master manipulator of laws and trying to suppress the people of God. This goes way back. And it, it's, it reminds me of the Nazi leaders sipping their expensive liquor, eating their pastries and their fine press suits while signing papers legitimizing the extermination of millions of Jews that we now know as the Holocaust. 
And isn't it interesting that they found this beautiful ornate necklace of some kind? I mean, it was really obviously very elaborate and it dated back to the days of Esther. And not only, I believe if I remember correct, there was like the sun god in it, but here's the interesting thing. The swastika was in, that symbol of the swastika was in that necklace. So I wonder sometimes, going way back to ancient times, some of these things like this that we may not know a lot about, but I wonder if that symbol of the swastika has been connected to this ancient hatred maybe further back than we realize. It's like a symbol of some type of demonic force, okay? And I'm going to come back to this later, so remember I said this. But if you look at Nazi Germany's um, insignias and you see the swastika, one of the symbols was not only the swastika by itself, but also there was like this phoenix bird type of eagle that was sitting on top of it and its feet were holding the swastika. I'm going to come back to that eagle later, but I want you to remember that, that phoenix bird or whatever. Okay, we also know that Haman was a type and picture of the Antichrist, and his ten sons that he had were reminiscent of the beast with ten heads that we read about in Revelation. So you see the Antichrist and then the beast with ten heads. And it's definitely something about the end times. And we also see in the story of Esther that prayer and fasting turned an impossible situation around. Esther, in many ways, is a picture and type of the, the bride of Christ. If you really look at this, she was purified with, with water immersion. She was anointed with the oils. And she was being really purified by that, like the washing of the water of the word, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the oils, and so that she could go before the king and her intercession affected many people. How many knows that the prayers of the righteous as we come together are powerful? I mean, it can affect nations, okay? Now, here's some things about Esau. <clears throat> Esau was the grandson of Abraham, and it says in the Bible that God hated Esau but loved Jacob. But why was there such strong feelings against Esau? Well, let, let's look at a couple things. Esau was red and hairy. And the Hebrew word for red, admoni, is connected with the word Edom. But you can't help but think of Adam. See, Adam was created from the dirt. And it was almost like a red clay. And he was fashioned out of the dirt. And when you think about this in connection with Esau, Esau almost, it's like he speaks of everything that's worldly and it's carnal. Does that make sense? Worldly and carnal. He was a man that was very worldly and very carnal. So Esau became synonymous because his family uh, became known as the Edomites. And Edom is connected to the word for red in Hebrew, so Edom. And so when you read in the Bible about the Edomites, it's the descendants of Esau, and they were a great enemy to Israel. And we're going to talk more about that as we go. But Esau did not care about the God of Abraham. And this is what irritates me. Every time I read about Esau, I just think about somebody that had everything given to him and cared nothing about it at all. Sometimes I find myself reading through Kings or Chronicles and you'll read about this good king and then the next guy you're reading about is this buffoon that comes in and wipes out anything to do with God and sets up every altar to bail you and then you're sitting there going, this guy, and it's kind of like that with Esau. I'm thinking about he's the grandson of Abraham and he, God, there's so much potential there, but he didn't care anything about the God of Abraham. So... Abraham's descendants were living in a land as strangers as pilgrims. This is important what I'm saying. They were not to intermarry with the Canaanites. They were there as strangers in a foreign land. And they lived in tents because they were a pilgrim people. They saw themselves as being distinct from the Canaanites and that they were walking through the land 
And Abraham, it says, was, was looking for the city of God whose maker and builder was God himself. He was on a pilgrimage. But they, were, they saw themselves as distinct and just passing through for a time. Eventually, they would be given that land. But see, Esau, listen to what he did. He married Canaanite women, and he built stone houses, and he was saying, basically, I am becoming a Canaanite. It was, it was serious. And when he realized how much Isaac and Rebekah were grieved by it, he did some kind of penance by marrying a descendant of Ishmael, but again, so think about this for a moment. Esau's wives would have burned incense to and prayed to and worshiped Canaanite gods in his home. And they would have taught his children that. And so Esau just simply allowed himself to basically become like a Canaanite and the Edomites were those that were not only heathen, but were enemies to God's people. And so therefore, God saw Esau and saw how wicked he really was in his heart, and he replaced him with Jacob. So the Hebrew word for Esau is a word play with the word seir, and that is where his descendants ended up living southeast of the Dead Sea in the mountains of Seir. That's where Esau ended up with his family, his descendants, he became a populous nation there on Mount Seir. Now, Jacob, his twin, Yaakov in Hebrew, means may God, may he, being God, protect. But it's closely related to the word akev, which means heal, and akov, which means to be deceitful. So it implies, it's like a play on words, it implies one who would grab the heel or trip somebody up or deceive, you see. And so it was like, had that negative connotation to it. And so people would have said that about Jacob in a joking way or a derogatory way, that he would be a deceiver. But really his name means, may he protect, speaking of God. So from the beginning, even though Esau was born first, Romans 9, 11 through 13, it shows that there, the election was of Jacob, that God had chosen from the womb that Jacob was going to be the one because God even spoke to uh, Rebekah that there's two nations warring within you and the older would serve the younger. So by election, even from his birth, Jacob was chosen. And isn't it interesting with the word red, so Esau's name became synonymous with Edom. Red, he was a carnal, worldly man. In Genesis 25, 29 through 31, just something interesting. Esau lost his birthright over red porridge, which was basically lentil stew. Just an interesting fact. But think about this for a moment. See, people that are worldly and carnal, how do they live? They, they live by the lust of their flesh. They live by just that moment what will make them happy. Just for that moment, he was hungry and wanted a bowl of stew. He was willing to mess up the rest of his entire life, despising his birthright just for a moment's pleasure. And that's exactly what people that are worldly and carnal will do, okay? Now, Isaac loved Esau because of his venison, but God loved Jacob because of his heart. Now, that's the difference. You can see sometimes in family that it's an interesting dynamic. You can see that with kids sometimes, one kid will have a heart for God while another doesn't. And that's what we're looking at here. And so God's election... God chose Seth over Cain. Now think about this, because in this culture, it was always the older brother that was chosen by the parent, okay? But God went against that time and time again when he chose Seth over Cain. He chose Shem over Japheth. He, he chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. He chose Ju Judah and Joseph over Reuben. He chose Moses over Aaron. Aaron. 
his older brother Aaron and chose David over his brothers. David was the youngest. That's why in this culture, when uh, Samuel came, that um, the oldest son was the one that was presented first, and then it went down the line, and they didn't even consider David because he was the youngest. But God chose David, you see. It was, it's a culture mindset. But Esau, by the time Jacob had left Haran, and Jacob was coming back from Haran, and remember, he had, he had uh, Rachel and Rebekah. He had all of his kids. He had all of his belongings. And he was traveling back from Haran. And Esau was going to intercept him. Esau had already occupied Mount Seir and had built up his rulership to where he actually was pretty powerful. So Esau had already occupied that area. And years later, let's look at some history here. Years later, in the days of Moses... Hundreds of years later, Moses was told by God to just go around Edom because Edom refused Israel passage through the wilderness. That's how much they hated Jacob and his family, that they would not even let them go through their territory. They needed water for their animals, and they refused them passage. God didn't forget that. And then later, King Amaziah invaded Edom. You remember Uzziah, who was a king during the days of Isaiah? Okay, Uzziah uh, restored the pot of Eloth. And then finally, Ahaz was defeated by Edom. So Ahaz, during his reign, was defeated by Edom. And Judah never did really recover from that point. So I'm going to give you something here. You're really going to have to pay attention to what I'm saying because this, what I'm about to get into is deep. And it's probably something you've never heard. And in some ways, it might be a little bit different. But I want to show you something. In Revelation 2, verse 9, so remember, we're talking about the rise of Satanism, and then we're also talking about the story of Esther. And in this, we're talking about that ancient hatred of God's people, okay? So in Revelation 2, verse 9, one of the things Jesus said here, which is very interesting, he said, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say, look at this, who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. How many have ever read that? And synagogue implies something Jewish here. He's saying that they claim to be Jews, but they're not. Now, I'm going to show you something that's kind of got layers of revelation in it. One of those layers has to do with this. How many knows that we have all, you know, greater Christendom around the world? We've got all these different Christian churches, and, but not everybody that's among us is really a Christian. And so there's a layer here. And, and I believe this with all my heart. I believe in the last days, one of the greatest enemies to the true people of God are going to be the fake Christians. In fact, I believe the fake Christians will align themselves with the false prophet in the days to come. I do. And they will turn against the true Christians and be some of the greatest persecutors if they're not already one of the greatest persecutors because there's people that profess to be Christians today that are very pro-liberal, uh, you know, sexual perversions like homosexuality. They're very for abortion. They're uh, they're, and, and they're great enemies to the true church because they'll say that the real Christians are unloving and hateful and intolerant and all this stuff, yet they themselves are the ones that are deceived. How many knows that we've got to be for what God's for and against what God's against? We love everybody, and we say those that, that's done things like had abortions that there's forgiveness. We say to people that are in sexual immorality, repent and God will accept you. Come to Christ and find forgiveness, you know? But anyway... Now, let's, let's dive into this. So most of us, how many of you guys have a Bible that if you go to the end of it, it's got maps? Okay. Those are really helpful, and they're really good. But most of our Bibles have very basic maps, and so I'm going to tell you something that probably is not in your maps, okay? But many of these leave out a significant change. So Edom is southeast of the Jordan. So they were outside of Israel. But history records this. There was a group 
called the Nabataeans, and they were a powerful warrior clan that was attacking Edom. So if you, if you look at me, you have Israel up against the Mediterranean Sea. Edom was on the right side of it, okay, in your maps. The Nabataeans were based also further east. They were attacking Edom from the east. Now, this is important where I'm going with this. This is going to end up going all the way into the days of Jesus. So the Nabataeans were this ancient powerful group attacking Edom, and it forced them. It forced Edom to flee and began to move inside Israel's border. See, here's what happened, and most of you are pretty familiar with the Scriptures. The nation of Assyria came in and attacked Israel, and because of their sin, God allowed the northern tribes to go into captivity to Assyria, okay? That left Israel vulnerable. In fact, the Assyrians tried to take Judah in the days of Hezekiah. We all know this famous story. In Hezekiah, Isaiah the prophet was still alive then. Hezekiah cried out to God, and God sent that angel and killed 100,000 of them. Remember that? And they, and they went back where they came from. God delivered Judah from Assyria, but the rest of Israel was taken captive. So that land was vulnerable and open for the most part. Well, the Edomites began to move into that land around Hebron and began to intermarry with some of the people there. Follow me because this is really important as we go. The, this group of people were Esau's descendants. And truthfully, they hated the Jews. These were the very ones that later on in history, Judah went from Hezekiah's day, went from one good king to a bad king, good king to a bad king. Remember that? And finally, God said, you know what? I've had enough. They're going to go into Babylonian captivity. The last prophet was Jeremiah, and they did. But when that happened... There was a group of people that were cheering as Jacob's descendants were being destroyed by Babylon. When Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., neighboring citizens, these are the Edomites, shouted with joy, and they were saying, raise it, raise it, dash their little children against the stones, wipe out the Jews. And this was spoken of in Psalm 137, 7 through 9. Now, this is, this is something that some of you don't know, but I, I find this really interesting. The Edomites gradually became known as the Edomians, I-D-U, Edomians, and there's maps, Roman maps, that have them right there around Hebron. These were actually descendants of Esau that had moved into Israel, and they became known as the Edomians, and they intermarried some Jewish people, and... When eventually, later in history, all this is important, so don't let me lose you. Later in history, Judas Maccabeus retook the city of Hebron in 164 B.C. Even though it came under Jewish control, the Edomites had intermarried there with the Samaritans and all that, okay? The Jews regained control. The Edomites either had to flee or they were forced to convert to Judaism, but they were not really a Jew, okay? Why is this so important? Why am I talking about all this? Because this, is, this blows my mind. So it was assumed by Rome that the Edomians were just Jewish. Look at this. Later in 47 BC, when Julius Caesar promoted an Edomian named Antipater to power. How many of y'all remember reading about Julius Caesar? A great general. He became so powerful, Rome said, you better get back here and submit. He became so powerful. He had to make up his mind, was he going to keep going forward in his military campaigns, or was he going to go back and submit himself under the Roman rule? And uh, he crossed the river called the Rubicon, and he said, I'm not going back. And that's where we get that saying, crossing the Rubicon. Once you do that, there's no turning back. You ever heard that saying? And uh, he became a great Roman leader. But when he, was, when he was in power, he promoted an Edomian named Antipater 
as a procurator, a leader over Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and he assumed he was a Jew. Why is this important? Because these Edomians had had five centuries of history in the land of Israel up to that point. And listen to this, Antipater's son was Herod. Do you remember how Herod was viewed as being favorable, like he was a Jew, but he wasn't? Remember that? He helped rebuild much of the temple. He, he participated in, in the sacrifices. He even stood there and read the book of the law, but yet he wasn't a real Jew. And as a matter of fact, when, it, when push came to shove, when Herod was threatened by the fact that the, the wise men came and he thought that, that there was a king of Israel, what did Herod do? He sent in the military to slaughter all the Jews in there, in Bethlehem, trying to kill Jesus. I mean, all the babies trying to kill Jesus. Remember that? And then after Herod slaughtered the babies, then you see another one, another Herod killed John the Baptist, had him beheaded. Another Herod killed James, the brother of Jesus, and tried to kill Peter. Remember this? So these Edomians had come in, and they were like fake Jews, if you will. Rome thought that they simply were Jewish, and that's the reason why I think that, that Antipater was put in power in the first place, because he thought that he could relate to the Jews being a Jew himself, but he wasn't. And they ended up, at key times, they ended up becoming, this is so interesting to me, Rome probably put them there with somewhat good intentions, thinking, well, they're Jewish and they'll help the Jewish people or at least understand them. Yet, they ended up being great enemies to the Jewish people, slaughtering babies, killing John the Baptist, killing uh, apostles. So anyway, this is really interesting to me. Now, I'm going to give you some layers of things here. In Obadiah, Obadiah is the book of the Bible. The prophet Obadiah was a great scathing rebuke of Edom, okay? So if you want to read it, it's not long at all, but it's just this rebuke from God against Edom. And keep in mind that Edom and his grandson Amalek were the, some of the greatest enemies of Israel, Okay, so in Obadiah 1.4, it says this, though exalt thyself as the eagle. This is another interesting layer that the phoenix bird, how many knows what the phoenix bird is? It's, it's a mythological thing. It's not real. But out of the ashes of destruction, let's say like war, like right now we, we talk about the Russian war with the Ukraine, and you see these, these cities that have just been bombed and, I mean, just destroyed. So the mindset is out of this destruction, out of ash, out of war, will emerge this phoenix bird out of it and come to power. So the mindset there is you create destruction and chaos, and then out of that will emerge something that really if I could say it this way, the devil wants to happen. Like if you want to bring change, you would create destruction and chaos and then out of that bring some kind of new order, some kind of change, like a phoenix bird rising out of the ashes. So the phoenix bird is a sign of the illuminist that worship Lucifer, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. And the eagle is the traditional ensign of Israel's enemies through history. Did you know that? This is crazy. That the eagle, the bird, has always been connected to some of Israel's greatest enemies like the Syrian Greek. You remember the story of the Maccabees with Epiphanes? He had the sign of the eagle. What about Herod and, and what about Rome? What about Nazi Germany? Remember I told you that Phoenix bird over the swastika. What about British? What about Russia? And today the financial cabal. Now, this is where I'm going to kind of get into something a little conspiracy-based and a little unique. But I have a friend of mine. I have to be careful what I say because it goes out on the Internet. And how many knows God has called all of us to be smart? 
okay? But I don't think that this would hurt anything for me to say this, but his, his last name is Rothschild, and he was related directly to these people I'm going to be talking about. Now, I've talked to him over, over the phone. I had really long, in-depth conversations with him because he accepted Christ as his Savior, changed his name, and had to go into hiding. They tried to kill him. So anyway, he confirmed a lot of things to me and shared a lot of very interesting information with me. But again, you got to be smart about what you say. It goes out on the internet. Amen? So anyway, there is a globalist worldwide financial cabal. It's a cult of wealthy and powerful people that directly worship Lucifer. And see, Lucifer is seen in the Bible. His name translates as light bearer. So there is some kind of false light with Lucifer, okay? And he's a fallen cherubim. Did y'all know that? Not really a normal, regular angel, if there is such a thing, but he was specifically a cherubim. And he fell, but he, he's known as like a light bearer. And so there is some kind of a weird false light and so what this group of people, when they're initiated in this Lucifer worship as Luciferians and this elite kind of um, powerful, wealthy group of people, the initiation is seen as such. Let me try to explain this. That there is a spiritual eye that's opened and, there, and their spiritual eye is illuminated with some type of light of Lucifer now that they have knowledge and understanding that the rest of the people don't. Real humble group of people, right? And that's their, one of their aspects of initiation, that they have some type of esoteric knowledge and wisdom, and they've been enlightened by Lucifer, so they're superior to others, okay? Now, follow me, because I'm going to go down through something really interesting, and then I'm, I'm going to bring it all together, Okay? And seven, this is historical facts I'm going to give you. In 1743, a goldsmith named Emschel Moses Bauer opened a coin shop in Frankfurt, Germany, and he hung a Roman eagle. Again, you see the eagle. He hung a Roman eagle on a red shield on his door sign. How many have seen this? So you have like a, a shield and it's red, but there's that black like eagle on it. Okay, that's what it was. He hung it on his door sign. The shop became, people called the shop the Red Shield Firm because of his sign. Now, Emshell had a son named Meyer that was extremely intelligent. Emshell taught his son all about money lending and the basic dynamics of finance. After his father's death, though, in 1755, Meyer went to work in Hanover as a clerk in a bank. The bank was owned by the Oppenheimers, and Meyer's superior ability was quickly recognized. His advancement with the firm was swift. His success and acquired wealth allowed him to return back to Frankfurt, and he purchased the business that his father had established back in 1743, and that big red shield of the Roman eagle was still on display on the door, okay? Now, his father, Emshell, knew the significance of the red flag emblem, which was also the emblem in the revolutionary-minded Jews in Eastern Europe. From Red Shield, Meyer changed his last name from Bauer to Rothschild, which means red flag in German. So you see it moved from Bauer to Rothschild. Okay, we now know this name as Rothschild. Okay, Meyer learned through the Oppenheimers that loaning money to governments was much more profitable than to private individuals because the loans were obviously much bigger, but they were secured by the nation's taxes. Meyer himself had five sons who were all bright, well-trained in the creation and manipulation of money. And as they came of age, he sent them to major capitals in Europe to open branch offices of the family business. And through these means, his family helped control those nations by controlling their wealth. Here in America, this is where we get what we call the Federal Reserve, which is a private-owned institution. This is where this comes from, in case y'all didn't know. 
1838, Nathan, one of Meyer's sons, stated this. He said, look, permit me to issue and control the money of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. In other words, it doesn't matter who's in power, and it doesn't matter the laws. If I control their wealth, I control the nation. That was his mindset. So I'm going to give you one more quick thing because everybody's kind of heard of Adam uh, Weishaupt and the whole Illuminati. So the saga continues with Adam Weishaupt and his formation of an occult group called the Illuminati and the secret meetings on Jekyll Island that established the Federal Reserve. Did everybody catch that? Yes. The Illuminati became the head over Freemasonry. So all of Freemasonry, the Scottish York Rites, all of it has come up underneath this group, that's why, and it's true, that's why you see that pyramid on the, the dollar bill and then the top part of it is raised up with that eye and that illumination in it. It's, it's an elite group that feels, at least in part, that they control the wealth of the world even though that's not 100% true, but they feel like they do. And they're supposedly the illuminated ones and they're over the rest of all of the different orders of Freemasonry around the world and all of that. And it's very difficult for anybody to really get into power in America or the West without having Freemasonic ties of some kind or being financially owned. And that's what my friend, when we talked on the phone, he was, he was directly related, directly involved with these people. It was his family. I mean, he knew the family business, okay? And he told me this. He said, it's very difficult, Scott, for people to get into political power and other forms of power without somebody financing them. And the problem is that when people finance them, they feel like they own them. And that's very problematic because even if somebody has good intentions, they feel totally controlled by those that are financing them. And he said also, he said, let me give you something to look for. He said, if you ever see somebody come out of total obscurity, they don't have money and they come out of nowhere and all of a sudden they have this great rise to power and all of a sudden it seems like overnight they're millionaires, possibly billionaires. He said, usually those people have been put there by this group. Very interesting, isn't it? So there was a lady, I'll share this with you, because I'm talking about the rise of Satanism. So there was a lady that was deeply involved in Satanism. Her name was Tammy. That's all I'm going to say. But she, she lived east of here at the time. And we personally know her. She got saved because of my wife's testimony. And so my wife, this is the story. My wife took her to that church where she was delivered. Y'all have heard the story? Okay. So I was able to sit with Tammy and talk to her for a long time. Her family, I mean, back generations were deeply involved in Satan worship. I mean, these, these were not just people that were like the white witches, you know, the, a love spell or something. These were people that were, that were Satanists, okay? They were sacrifices. They were dark, evil people. And this was the same group I told you about that there was a, one of their coven members was a female doctor and another one was a police officer in that city. This was a small city. And she herself uh, went to church every Sunday at a church. She was there to make sure nothing ever really happened that God wanted to happen. That was her assignment. But it was also a cover because she lived a double life. If you met her, you would never think that she lived the way she did. She was a churchgoer. She worked a government job. You know, just a normal lady. Isn't that creepy? They're among us. Okay, so anyway, she was telling me this, though. She said, when I was growing up and I was being trained, she said that my family was connected with a much larger group out of Dallas, Fort Worth Metroplex, and she said they, I had a, what they call a handler. And this handler was a guy that was supposed to train her. And he would teach her things and talk to her. And, and she said that one of the things that he taught her was that there's echelons of power in Satan worship. And, and he told her that the highest level, they were illuminists. And he said this, this is interesting. He said that Satan has them in key positions all over the world, some of them political and some of them financial, but in different spheres. And he said that they're there, that they know that they worship Satan 
and they're waiting for his Messiah to come, which is the Antichrist, to us, okay? And that they're there to help his rise to power when it's time. And she said, this is what she was told from the handler. Why would he be lying to her, you know? And so he said that those people have to always have a trainee because if something happens to them, like they die suddenly, their trainee could step in and keep that position filled. And then that person has to have a trainee. And they said that, she said that uh, he told her that this is very important because when it comes time for like Satan's Messiah to come to power, these people are going to be able to, to help him financially and, and politically be able to rise to power. You know what's weird about that? That's literally the Bible shows us that, he's, that the Antichrist will be a politician. So anyway, I don't want to say too much more, but I think you get the idea, okay? There's some wonderful people that are in politics. Thank God here in America, we have some very sincere Christians that are going to bat for us, wonderful people. And there's also other people that are just secular. They're just there and, you know, they serve a purpose. But there are those that are among a very dark, evil group that are serving the enemy. And you can see that even in the entertainment industry, there are some people that are secular, that are very talented, and, and they're just musicians. They're just artists. But there's others that there is a shroud of darkness about them that's undeniable. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen them. And same thing in Hollywood. There's some people that are just actors. They're just there, but there's, there's some that there's some kind of a darkness about them. And so he was telling me, my friend that was related to them and, and uh, left, changed his name and all that, he was saying that there are uh, groups that gather together that are extremely wealthy and they meet periodically and, and they, you know, strategize about things. And he also said this, he said that these families, now the Rothschild do have some Jewish uh, in their ancestry, but again, they've intermarried some, so how much has that been bred out, if you will? But there's other families that are not Jewish. And he said this, he said that these families, get this, they, he said we always had to intermarry with one another to keep the wealth in our families. So there was arranged marriages within these families to keep the finances in there because if you start marrying outside the family what happens the finances start going in all these different directions isn't that interesting so this was information that i've been given and i know it sounds a bit conspiracy based but psalms was it chapter two says why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth take their stand against the lord and his anointed they conspire against the lord and his anointed so the Bible says that these things are going on, and they are. And we know that one day there's going to be a false prophet arise, there's going to be an antichrist, and there's no doubt that Satan has key people around the world to try to assist that. I have no doubt about that. I think you have no doubt about that. So there is a war. Now let me give you some things to think about as I close this out. And close out this whole series. I've been exposing some of these groups. I've been exposing their agendas. Remember to infiltrate what politics and schools and all these different things. So layers of revelation here. Number one, you see that there's a family hatred that goes back to the womb of Rebecca. Have you ever considered that the Edomians and those that have DNA, so to speak, that goes back to like Esau and all of that, have you ever considered that here Israel is, get a map and look at the nation of Israel. It's like this teeny tiny little sliver on a map. Why do the nations rage about this little piece of land, you know? But all around Israel's border are those that have ancestry that goes back could it be that what we know today as the Palestinians and some of the Arabs and some of those that hate Israel so much, could they have genealogy that goes back to Edom? You see, there's an ancient hatred there. There's some type of a war there. Another layer, which I've already mentioned of revelation in this, 
is how the fake Jews in Jesus's day, there was so much animosity toward the real Jews. And these were people that had literal DNA going back to Esau. It's, it's amazing. But see, some have not really thought about this. And they read things like Jesus talking about the good Samaritan. And God did move in Samaria. Jesus visited Samaria. You know, God poured out his spirit and all that. God loves him. But you have to understand why the Jews didn't like him. Because whenever Edom moved in there and began to intermarry among these, these were the very ones in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah that were persecuting Ezra and Nehemiah. Everything that they tried to do was being attacked and persecuted by those people. You remember reading about Sanballat and Tobiah mocking Nehemiah? That was them. And so as time went on, these were people that were not real Jews. They, they, were, they had some Jewish in them, some of them did, but they were intermarried with the Edomites and others in the land. And so Israel, when it came time to build a temple and reestablish things, they couldn't allow them to be a part of it. There was always this animosity between them. Just like in the womb of Rebecca, there was some type of animosity in there between Jacob and Esau, that she finally cried out to God. How many have read that story? She finally cried out and said, what's going on in my stomach? And the Lord told her, there's two nations in you. You see it all the way down to the days of the Samaritans and that, that clash there between them, the fake Jews and the real Jews. Also, this blew my mind. Now, here's another layer, completely different. Did you know the rabbis of today? Because if you were to say, who are the Edomites today? It'd be hard to say for sure. But did you know this? Everybody look this way and hear me. The rabbis of today consider this to be the ancient enemy of Edom. You ready? The The financial cabal, the illuminists. Those that, that try to control the finances that are manipulating things, the rabbis today call them Edom. Isn't that weird? And interestingly enough, as far as the Rothschilds go, there is some Jewish ancestry in there. But they refer to those people as the Edomites. And guess what? Those very people that the rabbis today call Edom, that cult, the Illuminists, those that worship Lucifer, they're going to be the very ones, I guarantee you, out of that group, okay, is going to emerge a man known as the Antichrist one day, a false Messiah that Israel will accept. They're also going to be the very ones that are going to be instrumental in financing the rebuilding of that millennial temple, and they're going to help fund the rise of the Antichrist to power and one day, one of their own, the Antichrist, one of their own is going to sit himself in the temple and declare himself to be God and put his image, which I think will be Baphomet, make Israel worship. And what's going to happen? This guy, the Antichrist, who in my opinion, probably his mother will be Jewish. And so he'll be considered a Jew, but he's not really one. Does that make sense? He's going to be the very one that's going to slaughter two-thirds of the Jews in a genocide. And the Bible says it. And today the rabbis call this group Edom. Does anybody else find this interesting? So in regards to Esther, as I bring it all together, Esther saw such an enormous turnaround, a miraculous victory that affected nations because of her humility, prayer, and fasting. So look, we're living in the last days. This this rise of Satanism is not going away. There's different forms of it. The highest form way up there seems to be the Illuminists. They worship Lucifer. They know what they're doing. But there's all these different groups. This isn't going away. There's a spiritual battle. The Bible says in Isaiah, gross darkness or thick darkness will come on the earth. Jesus said it would be like it was in the days of Noah and like it was in the days of Lot. In the days of Noah, 
it was so spiritually dark, just the world, in my opinion, full of the occult, full of, of what would be known as Satan worship, and I mean, just darkness and violence. In the days of Lot, what was it? Major sexual perversions. And we're seeing this come, come up in our generation. But here's the thing. God is going to pour out his spirit. You mark my word. Satan always overplays his hand. He's going to keep trying to do all this stuff. And then what's going to happen? The Lord is going to pour out his spirit and send revival. And it's going to trump everything the devil's trying to do. Somebody put this, and I think it's, it's true, that Stan Smith or Sam Smith, whoever he was, that had that weird uh, Grammy, you know, like a very satanic-looking Grammy thing, and supposedly CBS Twitter, uh, you know, what, five minutes of worship, they called it. And then God decided to pour out his spirit at Asbury and have a couple weeks of straight worship. You see what I'm saying? God's always got the upper hand. He's going to trump everything the devil's trying to do. And let me tell you, in these last days, the Bible says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And the Bible says, the end of the age is the harvest. And the book of Daniel says this, those that know their God will do great exploits. I believe that while Satan thinks he has the upper hand, God is going to pour out his spirit and, and yield a supernatural harvest right out. And many of these people that are illuminists and Satan worshipers and witches, etc., etc. how many knows there's going to be a harvest come out from among them as well? And so there's going to be a great move of God in these last days, but you're seeing everything the Bible predicted starting to come to pass in our generation. And this rise of Satanism and all this is, is very indicative of the fact that the Antichrist is about to come to power. I mean, it's soon. But it also is great news for us because of two reasons. We're going to see the greatest revival the world's ever seen, and we're about to see Jesus come. Amen? And the Bible says when you see all these things, look up because your redemption draws nigh. All right? So we're not here just to cower down and wait to get rapture. We're here to see Holy Ghost revival, to see a major end-time harvest of souls, to see a bride made ready to meet the Lord in the air, and to be doing Book of Acts Christianity. That's what I'm living for. And we're going to see it in the days to come, I promise you. I believe it's already, I think Asbury and all that was just like a, a rumbling. And I don't think this was in any of the recordings, so I'm going to go ahead and say this. I think I said it to you guys at a prayer meeting, but... How many knows that it's no accident, you know, but before Bob Jones died, he said eventually the Kansas City Chiefs would win the Super Bowl, and it was a sign of great revival and apostolic chiefs coming up. Listen, he, when he prophesied that, the Chiefs were one of those you would think, yeah, right, they're going to win the Super Bowl. You know, back when he said that, everybody would have thought, okay, you know, but they came and won the Super Bowl. And then, listen, this time when they won the Super Bowl this time, okay, at the same time they won, we have this Asbury revival breakout, and it wasn't just something that was isolated. It began to break out in other, last I heard, somewhere around 21 college campuses. It has spread to churches, and it's really been a move of the Lord. And thirdly, isn't it interesting that a movie that was in the works for seven years was released in February, the same time frame. It's the Jesus Revolution movie, the same time frame that the revival broke out and right as the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. It's hard to believe that that's not a sign that God's up to something. It's hard to believe that that's not a sign. That's too much of a coincidence. I understand that there are coincidences, but that's too much of one to think that God's not in that. I think that that's a sign that there's a rumbling that's already beginning in the land and that God's going to answer the prayers of those that's been crying out for revival in this nation. Now, I believe it's already beginning. It's at an infancy stage, but there's a rumbling. You can sense it. But anyway, so Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this word tonight. I thank you, Lord, for, for exposing darkness. In my first sermon, Ephesians says, have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, but rather expose it. It's, it's my responsibility and the responsibility of churches and preachers and Christians to expose the enemy and expose what he's doing. 
And so, Lord, we're doing what the Bible tells us to do. And I thank you, Lord, for honoring this, this word. And, and I believe, I just feel an anointing as I've been preaching it. But I thank you, Lord, for this series, getting where it needs to, accomplishing what it needs to. And it will be powerful and effective and will help many. But, Lord, I thank you. Bottom line, even though darkness is coming, there's going to be a greater light. That even though Satan and evil may be emerging, there's going to be a great revival. And, Lord, you've got incredible things you've got for the church, and we're going to see so many glorious things in the days to come. And I believe there's going to be many of these that are trapped in darkness that are about to see Jesus. And, I mean, come out of it and have major, major encounters with him and testimonies. And like my wife's testimony, is going to be many, many that's about to come. But, Lord, we thank you and let everything be accomplished in it through this, this little series we did that you will to be done around the world. Let it go forth and accomplish what you sent it forth to do. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to pray for people tonight. I sense a strong.